COP26, the latest climate conference, wrapped up in Glasgow at the end of last week. 197 countries signed the Glasgow Climate Pact, which aims to, among other things, phase down unabated coal power throughout the world. I'm James Ha, an associate at Grant Institute, and here with me today to talk about all of the things that happened at COP26 and the implications for Australia are Tony Wood, Program Director of the Energy and Climate Change Program here at Grattan, and Alison Reeve, the Deputy Program Director. So, Tony, at COP26, we saw countries increase their level of ambition with regards to climate and make new pledges. Does this mean that the world is now on track to avoid the worst of global warming? Well, James, I think the, um, the history of these conferences is that everybody starts out with great aspirations and about halfway through, they get very frustrated because they're not making the progress they would like. And then ultimately, they sign up on some sort of communique, in this case, called the Glasgow Climate Pact, which actually does make some commitments, usually far short of the best hopes, but in excess of what the worst um, concerns might have been. So that's where we ended up pretty much on this one. Uh, the world has not yet on track to deliver what was the commitment, the Paris Agreement, that is, to keep global average temperature increases to less than two degrees above pre-industrial levels and preferably as close to 1.5 as possible. But some progress was made. So our intention this afternoon, with your input, Alison and myself, is to talk about what actually was achieved. And more interestingly, what does that mean for Australia's position? Because we did sign the Glasgow Climate Pact, even though we did not sign some of the pledges that were made separately outside the pact on specific issues. I guess one place to start is with the actual overall climate pact and what the commitments that were made actually mean in terms of the aspirations or the original commitment that came out of the Paris conference back in 2015. Alison, would you like to just comment briefly on how you think that looks? I think one of the positive things that, that did come out of Glasgow is that the objective of this agreement has sort of moved on from the Paris objective, which was around limiting global warming to two degrees, to something closer to 1.5 degrees. And I think even though it did fall short of actually achieving it in this time round, one thing that has happened is that there's a comeback for next year. So people are expected to come back to another conference of the parties next year and bring back strengthened near-term targets that actually will do something towards keeping 1.5 degrees within reach. I think actually the other thing that was significant as well was we saw commitments from countries who previously had not made large commitments towards that goal, such as India. Um, so India has now committed to reach net zero emissions by 2070, which in terms of effort against what would otherwise have happened is roughly similar to developed countries moving to get there by, by 2050. And that's a really significant um, commitment because India is one of the largest countries in the world population-wise and was one of the ones that was going to contribute a lot to emissions growth. One of the cool things about India signing up to net zero by 2070 is it means that now 90% of the world's emissions are covered by net zero commitments, although with varying timelines. And the Climate Action Tracker thinks that if all of these commitments are actually met, and that, that's a really, really big if, then the world may be on track for something like 1.8 degrees plus or minus a bit that could still push us over two degrees. But there's a gap between the policies that countries have announced and the targets that they want to hit. And that gap means that just based on the policies that all of the countries have today, 
the Climate Action Tracker actually thinks that we're much more likely to hit something between 2 and 3.6 degrees of warming. Well, I guess, James, yeah. that also plays into the what became an increasingly topical issue in Glasgow. It wasn't just the long-term commitment to net zero by 2050. As you say, many countries have now signed up to that. But what that means, in, what it means in terms of the 2030 targets, which are actually the nationally determined contributions to meeting that target, Australia, at the very last minute, decided to commit to the 2050 target, but left its 2030 target in place on the basis that that was the target that it took to the last election, was going to meet and beat that target, but it had no intention of increasing it. So how does that play out, do you think, in relation to what it's now got? Because the Glasgow Climate Pact specifically includes a sentence that says it requests parties to revisit and strengthen the 2030 target in their actually determined contributions as necessary to align with that Paris Agreement, temperature increase we've just been talking about, by the end of 2022. Now, there's been a lot of speculation as to what that might mean, but what do you think it might mean practically for the government and possibly even for the opposition Labor Party, given within a few months we're going to have a federal election? So the Prime Minister has to decide whether he takes a higher target to that election. Part of the justification for keeping Australia's 2030 target at 26 to 28% below 2005 levels is that that was the commitment that uh, Scott Morrison took to the 2019 election. If he decides to take that same level to the next election um, and, and wins that election, then at some point next year, he's going to have to once again face the international stage and explain why Australia's 2030 target hasn't moved um, despite successive election cycles. So what it practically means for the, for the upcoming election is that targets will be a topic. The 2030 target will be a, a big issue. Well, I guess potentially... He's opened a, a small door there for Labor to themselves step in there and make a commitment to an upgraded 2030 target, although we've also seen organisations like the Business Council themselves suggest what they would recommend as a target. And more recently, there's been some speculation, even out of some members of the uh, Liberal Coalition Party room, that maybe a 2035 target might be a way out rather than having to change the 2030 target, which it seems like became a significant issue in the negotiations between the Prime Minister and Barnaby Joyce. So I guess that's going to be one of the really interesting topics that comes up through to the election. The other issue that became quite a topic for Australia was that many countries at the um, Glasgow conference did sign up to basically putting a sign on the wall that says that the end of coal is nigh. Now, how you interpret that is obviously open to lots of speculation. There was huge debate precisely what the words will be. And I'm sure many people uh, listening to this podcast would be aware that the words from were watered down from being we want to see the, the phase out of coal power to the phase down of coal power. And remember, from an Australian perspective, I guess it's important, Alison, that when we talk about coal power, we're talking about coal for power generation. A substantial part of Australia's coal industry is also or metallurgical coal, which is used in the manufacturing of iron and steel. And that's a huge issue for us as well. But how do you see that uh, phase down, phase out of coal power being interpreted uh, during, you know, from an Australian domestic policy perspective? Coal is going to almost phasing itself down, or rather renewables are phasing coal down in Australia for power generation anyway, because they are 
you know, our coal fleet, I feel like we say this on the podcast all the time, right? Our coal fleet is aging. No one is going to replace a coal-fired power station with a coal-fired power station. And, I mean, the government's latest projections on electricity, for example, show an additional five gigawatts of coal compared to last year leaving the market before 2030. I think from from that perspective, unabated coal for electricity generation in Australia is going to phase itself out. The other thing that is important for us, though, is, as you mentioned, is a lot of our coal is for exports. And so it's also how other people interpret phasing down unabated coal power and whether those are people who buy Australian coal. I guess this sort of is going to vary a bit from country to country. Um, I could see a country like, say, China or India who have substantial domestic coal production as well, just deciding that they're not going to import as much coal as part of phasing down, which obviously will impact on us. But then there are countries like Japan who have no domestic coal production, but they do consume quite a bit of of imported coal, including from Australia. And so their decision, the the speed at which they go, will impact on us in a a different way. Following India's commitment to net zero, now 74% of our thermal coal exports go to countries that have made net zero commitments. So that phase down and phase out is really going to affect Australian production of coal. There's not really much that Australian governments can do about it. I guess the other thing about this is that there was a lot of talk at the COP meeting about subsidies for fossil fuels, and there's been some of that discussion in Australia. Does the Australian governments actually provide much subsidy for fossil fuels, and what are the prospects of those of those subsidies being phased down or phased out? As part of this, um, as part of this commitment, even if we haven't signed up to that particular pledge, what people often think about when they think about subsidies for fossil fuels in other countries is um, direct subsidies on things like petrol or, or electricity or whatever. We don't have those so much in Australia, but we do have substantial amounts of um, taxpayer money that does go to support the expansion of fossil fuels in Australia. So. I mean, for example, in the last budget, there was around $200 million of money that was allocated for building roads for gas companies to access the Beetaloo Basin in the Northern Territory. The Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility, which provides concessional finance to projects in Northern Australia, is supporting, I think it's three gas-fired power stations and also a new metallurgical coal mine. Again, the other thing is what other countries do about reducing inefficient fossil fuel subsidies will also impact on us. So to the extent that they are subsidising the consumption of our coal and our gas, if they stop doing that, that will impact on the price that we can get from the, for those and then also the production. The phase-out of fossil fuel subsidies has been, it's been a really long-standing thing in climate talks for a very long time and Things don't necessarily get done about it, but I think the writing is starting to be on the wall a little bit because you actually have a genuine alternative now with the price of um, renewables and the role of electrification that it is actually, I think, possible for a lot more governments to see a way forward to stop subsidising this without creating a political issue for themselves. I guess we've seen the same thing play out already. You know, the government's made a bit of a thing about the possibility of supporting a feasibility study for a coal-fired power station in Queensland, for example, but that seems to have gone remarkably cold and maybe reality is dawning that no one seriously wants to invest in coal-fired power anymore. So the idea of trying to subsidise your way out of that probably isn't such a good idea. But James, one of the areas that Australia did make a contribution to, we're, not, we're certainly not as though Australia didn't contribute to some of these serious pledges, was in relation to deforestation and energy productivity. Can you talk us a little bit about, uh, given that Australia uh, has claimed a lot of credits, uh, a lot of reductions due to 
changes in the way we've dealt with forestry and land. What's the what's the uh, pledge we've signed up to here, and what might it mean for Australia? 141 countries, which together span about 90% of the world's forests, uh, agreed in Glasgow to halt and reverse the loss of forests and land degradation by 2030. Now, in Australia, uh, we historically had very high levels of land clearing in the 1990s and the early 2000s. Um, But since about 2009, we've actually ended net deforestation which means that the area of forest that's cleared each year is roughly equivalent to the area of forest that grows back. So for us to meet this pledge, we have to ensure that this balance doesn't revert back again to the old land clearing rates. And to reverse forest loss, we actually have to go further um, and ensure that the amount of forest that is regrown and the amount of land rehabilitation that occurs exceeds what what needs to be done to keep land productive through through forest clearing on, say, agricultural land. Now, most Australians probably don't plant forests or clear forests. Most of us, however, do have homes and kitchens and so forth. And the other thing that Australia signed up to was this pledge on improving our energy productivity. Alison, does this mean we're suddenly going to have governments telling us we've got to throw away our old appliances and buy really expensive new ones? Or how are we going to achieve it in such a dramatic increase of doubling the energy productivity when uh, we've got all these things in our homes. So this commitment um, is called the Super Efficient Equipment and Appliance Deployment Initiative, which is quite a mouthful. But um, basically what it is is that a a group of countries have identified four things where improving the efficiency of that equipment could make a big difference to emissions, and those are fridges, lights, air conditioners and industrial motors. In Australia, all four of those are already regulated for the level of um, energy performance that they have to achieve. So with lighting, for example, Australia was a world leader in regulating the efficiency of lighting going sort of back to 2006, 2007. And one of the things that we've seen, and people will know this from thinking about what they've got in their house now, is over that roughly 14-year period, we've gone from the incandescent light globes being the thing that everybody had. We've gone through a stage of having compact fluorescent light globes and we're now having people going to LED bulbs, um, which are even more efficient again. So what tends to happen with these sorts of things is you you change the current technology until the point where you can't squeeze any more efficiency out of it and then someone will find a substitute in the way that LEDs have become a substitute for, for fluorescent lighting. With um, industrial motors, Australia has only recently started regulating those. So I think there's probably a fair bit of efficiency gain to make in those. With air conditioners and fridges, the way that the regulation of these works is that the government sets out kind of five years in advance the standard that the equipment will have to meet in five years' time. They don't force anyone to buy a new fridge. It just means whatever fridge gets sold in that year will need to have a particular level of of energy performance. And so as those appliances turn over, you know, as we we buy new fridges because the old one um, has broken down or because we're renovating the kitchen and we've now got more space or because you just genuinely want a fancier fridge, it just means that whenever you buy a new one of those, it is more efficient than the previous one that you had. And over time, what that does is increase the overall efficiency of all of the fridges across across the country and we actually end up saving quite a lot of, um, of electricity over time and because electricity has greenhouse gas emissions associated with it, it saves emissions. Oh, so we can all look forward to reducing our electricity bills as well as improving our energy efficiency. That can well, only be a good thing, I guess. 
I think it's a really important thing about all of these efficiency regulations end up saving consumers money. And one of the things about making them a performance-based regulation means that often that means that there's very little price impact on the upfront purchase cost of increasing the level of efficiency, but the people who buy them end up paying less to run them. So you actually get a quite strong net benefit to the consumer. I guess it's nice to see something that produces the net benefit because one of the things that I know caused a significant reaction from the leader of the National Party, Barnaby Joyce, was the idea that a number of countries signed up to a commitment or a pledge to reduce global methane emissions by 30%. And um, Australia did not sign up to that. Barnaby Joyce suggested that you'd have to go around shooting all of our cows is the only way you'd ever achieve this. Why do you think, James, this was such a problematic issue for Australia, uh, given so many other countries were prepared to sign up to such a methane pledge? And what is it about methane that causes so much fuss. So methane is a short-lived gas in the atmosphere, but it causes a huge amount of warming while it is up there. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the pledge aims to cut methane emissions uh, by 30% by 2030. And that will give us sort of a quick win and buy us time to make progress on the other more significant greenhouse gas, which is carbon dioxide, and effectively just buy the world a little bit more breathing space and reduce the risk that we go over 1.5 degrees of warming before we've got our other emissions down. Most of Australia's methane emissions come from livestock. They come from a process that happens within the gut of uh, sheep and cattle. But also a significant amount of methane in Australia comes from our fossil fuel production, mostly from our coal mines, which actually release methane as the mines developed. And even when the mines stop being used, uh, methane can continue to leak out. So one of the reasons why the government potentially shied away from signing up to this pledge is that there's not yet good technological fixes for a lot of these emissions, particularly around livestock. We know that there are solutions being worked on. So things like feed supplements or vaccines that would help to cut the amount of methane that cattle and sheep produce, but they're not yet readily available and commercial. Um, and so as part of the government's focus on using only technology to drive down emissions, that potentially explains why they didn't sign up to this particular pledge. The rest of the world might actually make a lot of progress on developing these technologies. You know, we know that the New Zealand government is very focused on developing vaccines to cut sheep emissions, and Australia might actually be able to free ride on some of these technological developments. So I guess that sort of brings us back to Australia's role in all this. And during the COP process, both immediately before and during, the government published a series of things. Firstly, their long-term emissions reduction plan following the commitment to net zero by 2050. Here's the plan that's going to get us there. The um, low emission technology statement that provided more detail about the, um, the technologies, the seven major technology areas that the government was going to support, which would be the core of how the government intends to reduce our emissions. And finally, it also released the uh, economic modelling that purports to show that for Australians, this will be overall a better approach than some of the other alternatives. So looking at that, one of the things that struck me was that, firstly, the plan doesn't actually try to get to even net zero because it recognises that the last 15% or so will have to be achieved with technologies yet to be developed. And that's a specific contribution that was included in the analysis. Many people have criticised it, of course, because it's an unknown by its very nature. That's where we are. In addition to that, what was interesting is that for Australia, there was also included for Australia a 15% contribution coming from buying, effectively buying uh, credits from other countries uh, that would actually be doing things to reduce their emissions. 
So, Alison, can you talk a little bit about how does that work? I mean, what's the idea of paying someone else to do the stuff you should be doing yourself? So this is called, effectively, is what people call offsetting. Offsetting means that instead of either reducing your, your own emissions, either because it's not economic or it's not technologically possible, you pay someone somewhere else to either reduce their emissions or to capture CO2 from the atmosphere and sequester it away, either by doing something like planting a tree or through something like um, carbon capture and storage. What is, I think, interesting in the government's plan is that they're expecting that such a large amount is going to come from offsetting. The thing that we've got to remember, though, is that Australia is a very small percentage of the world's emissions. 15% of a small number is even a smaller number. And there'll be lots of other countries that are looking for offsets. And so we're going to be a small player in a, in a global market for offsets. The other thing that was left dangling a little bit, and we addressed this partly in our report, was that a lot of those offsetting activities are still difficult to um, quantify. They look very expensive. And even in the government's report, they ref reflected that one of the potentially interesting ones is to directly capture the carbon dioxide from the air and uh, sequester it using carbon capture and storage. And yet... At the moment, even the government's estimating that could be $400 a tonne. So as a way out of jail, that seems like a pretty expensive thing to do. So you can understand why at the end of all that analysis, there was quite a few bits left over. And I guess that brings me to the, to the modelling analysis that was published. And what do we think about the, the way in which that modelling demonstrated support for the government's plan to get to net zero by 2050, compared with using technology, not taxes, and compared with other ways which might be labelled as some form of carbon tax. James, can you just comment about, does the, does the analysis show that how we'll do that and therefore demonstrate support for the government position, do you think? So the analysis doesn't directly compare a situation where we use only technology and only incentives to a situation where we use a more efficient mechanism like a carbon price to deliver the bulk of emissions reductions. So to draw the conclusion that technology, not taxes, is the right way forward, from that modelling would be the wrong conclusion to draw. Of the seven technologies that the government has uh, prioritised in its low emissions technology statement, the modelling effectively assumes that the government is able to deliver huge cost reductions in those technologies through its support for them. But it's quite unclear how the government's support is going to lead to such magical cost reductions. And the pushing down the cost of technology is really a global challenge, and it will be driven by technological developments in other countries as well as Australia, and by investments by other governments, and also by large-scale deployment. You know, deploying technologies is one of the key ways to bring, bring it down the cost curve. So without policies to actually get technology deployed, it's not clear that we'll actually see the prices that the modeling envisions. One of the most interesting things in the modeling is that the key scenario that the government has adopted as their plan, as you said, Tony, it actually doesn't try to get to net zero. It tries to get to about 85% lower emissions by 2050. And it does so using a voluntary carbon price of about $25 per tonne. But in the modeling, there is actually a scenario that does try to get to net zero by 2050. And it does so with a carbon price of about $80 a tonne. Now, $80 a tonne is a lot more than what the government pays for abatement through the Emissions Reduction Fund at the moment. And it's quite a bit more than what Australia's carbon price was back in 2014. But actually, $80 a tonne is quite cheap on the world scale compared to, say, the cost of carbon permits in the EU or the proposed $170 per tonne carbon tax in Canada. So if we can achieve net zero for a cost of $80 per tonne, that's actually a really positive outcome. 
in the work we did last earlier this year, we looked at some of those areas where we could reduce emissions in various ways and suggested there were quite a lot of things we could do. Many of those probably don't require a form of economy-wide carbon price, but they certainly are going to require actions. And even in the government's own analysis, they demonstrate that a lot of the reductions in emissions they can see coming aren't going to come from technology changes. They're going to come from either state-based renewable energy targets that will continue to drive the transformation of the electricity system from fossil fuel to renewables. And even as well, even without the sort of emissions standard that we recommended should be introduced for vehicles, that the, electric vehicle, that the vehicle fleet in Australia would largely be electric by 2050 and that that would probably come about because we'll simply buy those vehicles when they become cheaper. So that looks like to be a pretty positive story. One of the challenging ones that's in here is that the government's numbers, even though they talk about the long life of coal ahead, also the numbers themselves show that basically our coal industry falls away quite significantly. Now, even then, these numbers show that our, the value of our coal exports in total, both metallurgical coal and thermal coal, would fall away by about 50% by 2050. And obviously, that has major implications for our regions and jobs. So what's going to replace it? The government identifies one big thing, and that is that by 2050, we'll have a $50 billion hydrogen industry, which would be a benefit to all Australians. Alison, you had a lot to do with Australia's hydrogen strategy. How do you think that idea of a $50 billion Australian hydrogen industry shapes up as being the answer to everybody's prayers? Yeah, I mean, the, the National Hydrogen Strategy explored four different scenarios for how Australia's hydrogen future might play out. And the most ambitious of those scenarios estimated that the industry in 2050 would be worth around $26 billion. So that's quite a bit smaller. And that scenario was based on hydrogen being used worldwide for pretty much everything that you could use it for. Um, and also it was based on countries worldwide and Australia taking deep and committed action to reduce emissions quite quickly. One of the things that's, I guess, needs to be reconciled between that piece of work and the current piece of work is what has changed to make the hydrogen worth more in a world where people aren't acting as fast as what we thought was they potentially could be in, in that other strategy. So it's kind of difficult to square that circle. The other thing is when we talk about the benefits to all Australians, it's a little bit like that old joke about, you know, when Bill Gates walks into a bar, he makes everyone on average a millionaire. It might be that the aggregate value to the economy is $50 billion, but that doesn't mean that you're going to get a check for $1,000 in the mail. It's a little bit similar to the mining boom. The mining boom benefited the Australian economy a lot. And if you had shares in BHP, it probably benefited you. And if you worked in mining, it benefited you. But it's very difficult for the rest of us who don't have shares in BHP and who don't work in mining to actually put our fingers on exactly how much the mining boom benefited us. How that gets distributed to people is actually really important. The other thing um, that I think it's important to think through when we talk about a hydrogen industry that big is the amount of renewables that you would have to build in order to power that industry. And that would have a really significant impact on land use and an impact on electricity networks. And the other part of it is the amount of water that you would use because that hydrogen would most probably come from water and Australia is one of the driest countries in the world. When we did the National Hydrogen Strategy, we did some estimates around the amount of water that you would need for a very large hydrogen industry. It is possible 
that a very large hydrogen industry might benefit every Australian by $1,000 in 2050. It sounds like there's going to be a lot of issues for debate between now and the next election and beyond. So even though uh, just before he left for Glasgow, the Prime Minister eventually was able to make the commitment that we would, uh, our target would be net zero by 2050. Many people would say, well, thank goodness um, the climate war in Australia is finished. We can now get back to our lives. And I think part of what we've been discussing here on this podcast suggests that maybe that won't be the case, that we might very well have declared a truce at that level. The, the, the detail will go on and it'll be interesting to see to what extent uh, climate change does turn out to be a major issue at the election. James, you're going to be... Um, finishing up with Grattan very soon. And that's, from our perspective, a sad thing. And I'm sure people listening to this podcast would have enjoyed your contribution um, to our work. I'm wondering, when you look at what this now is going to mean, if you're not going to be working on policy, at least for a little while, I hope you come back to it. What would you think of the one or two big issues that whoever's in government after the election next year, whenever it's held, um, should be thinking about on this big, these big issues associated with climate change policy for Australia? The first is that solving Australia's part of the climate puzzle actually requires a lot of things to go right. It means governments have to do a lot of things now. And that's very difficult because you know, traditionally governments should, they should prioritize on, on a, just a few dimensions and, and try and get those right. But to hit our now official net zero by 2050 target, um, there's lots of problems that require governments to move very quickly. And so, for example, they include things like deciding on the future of the gas network, um, if we're going to actually see more and more households switch to using just electricity to reduce their emissions. Um, it means getting the electricity infrastructure that we're going to need built on time and on budget so that we can access our renewable resources. Uh, It means making sure that every asset replacement decision, whether that's buying a new car, putting a new boiler in an industrial facility, or actually replacing a a blast furnace at a steelworks, um, those replacements are made with the emissions impact in mind um, and and being cognizant of the net zero by 2050 target. I think the sleeper issue for governments, and and this may go beyond whoever wins the election, is reconciling the targets that we have with the carbon budgets that actually matter for temperature rise. So it's the amount of of emissions that Australia puts out over time that matters for our contribution to global warming, not just whether we hit net zero in 2050 or not. And so that means that we have to grapple with the possibility that Australia needs to go beyond net zero in future and actively remove more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere than it emits in order to actually undo some of the emissions that it's done in the past. Uh, and thinking about who is best placed to pay for that removal. But Alison, you spent a lot of your career inside government, and James has covered some pretty significant uh, top-level issues. Over the last six months, you've also spent some time working with James and myself on these issues. Well, what are the practical policies that a government could do now which would actually head us in a better direction? Of all that, your thinking over those years and more recently, what would you suggest to the top yeah, two or three things you would think we should be recommending that the government should be thinking about, whoever they, whoever's in government. The top one I would pick would be doing something about emissions from cars and light vehicles. And Gretton's now done two reports on that, suggesting that an emission ceiling is the way to go. The reason I would pick that is because transport um, is a fairly significant part of emissions in our economy and vehicles, you know, your car and my car are the largest part of that. 
It's also because those standards save consumers money. They actually end up with a net benefit. So that would be my top one if I was advising an incoming government of either colour. It's also because we have very little in the transport sector at the moment that is putting any pressure on emissions reductions at all. And you can see this if you disaggregate the government's latest projections. Pretty much all of the work for getting to 2030 is being done by the electricity sector and most other sectors are sitting pretty flat. And that is not the way to get to net zero by 2050. I think the second thing that I would pick would be to put a signal into the industrial sector about what you expect from future facilities. So people who are building new plants of any sort at the moment, they don't get any information from government about what their future emissions liability would be. And I think that putting in place under the safeguard mechanism a new emissions facility benchmark so that new facilities that we build between now and 2050 perform significantly better on emissions. And the reason that's important is because if you build a new industrial facility today, it's going to be around for 40 years. It will still be there in 2050. So it actually really matters what decision you make about the emissions if you want to be at net zero in 2050. So COP26 is now done. A lot of the attention will turn to the election and what comes beyond that. And then as we've been discussing earlier, not very long after that, there'll be another COP27, this time in Egypt. So we'll see how that plays out. It seems to me that one of the overarching things here is that it's pretty easy to criticise what the government put out over the last little while as being not enough or being inconsistent with net zero by 2050 or not representing a plan. But they have done some things and we'll see how that plays out. At the same time, Labor has yet to break cover and announce what it would take to the next election. So clearly there's a lot of space there for both parties to refine, uh, repolish, represent the arguments that they would take the election. What we've been suggesting is that Technology is necessary, but it's not sufficient to get us to net zero by 2050, and certainly not at lowest cost. There are practical things that the governments can do. And if those of you who've been listening to our podcast during the last six months would know that's where we focused our attention. We'd like to think that both sides of politics would listen to some of our suggestions. We know they won't listen to all of them. But it's going to be an interesting journey over the next little while. And hopefully as that time passes, we'll see what happens and you'll hear more from us about the way we're interpreting the sort of policy challenges and policy decisions that the next government will have to make in Australia's best interests to reach net zero by 2050.